You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Simon London, an editor with McKinsey Publishing. Today we're going to be talking about cybersecurity, how organizations can deal with the increasingly sophisticated threats to their information systems and assets. Joining me here in our Silicon Valley office to discuss the issues are Dane Myers and Mark Sorrell, who are leaders of McKinsey's Cyber Solutions. So Dane and Mark, thank you very much for being here today. Thank, thank you for having us. So uh, a year ago, we had our wonderful colleague, James Kaplan, on this podcast. Um, we talked about some of the fundamentals of cybersecurity. He, uh, he also introduced the, the concept of digital resilience, which I think we'll go into in more detail later. But before we do that, just, just look back on 2016, a year since James was on here talking about cybersecurity. How did the year shape up in the end? Well, Simon, I would say that uh, one of the most significant things we're seeing is that it is much more cybersecurity risk, in particular, is much more becoming a board issue. Boards of directors are feeling like they need to uh, pay attention to this. I think another thing we've learned is that the, a lot of the boards and CEOs are becoming more concerned about the money they're spending and whether or not they are getting uh, adequate return on their investment in cybersecurity technology and defenses, and also whether or not they're prioritizing the right things. And I would say one final point is, as the world gets more digitized and all companies of all sorts, not just cloud-based companies are becoming and not just software companies are becoming more uh, digitized, that threat goes up exponentially. And innovation is slowed if you're attacked, but also trying to plan out cybersecurity in a way that uh, does not slow down that digitization and that innovation is, is difficult. Something that uh, James mentioned last year was some initial data we had showing that uh, among cybersecurity professionals, there was a feeling that the, the attackers were moving faster and innovating faster. Uh, than the good guys. Is that still the case? Absolutely, it is, Simon. And I think actually we've seen an acceleration of that gap growth between the attackers and the defenders. You can look at it any number of ways. Probably the best way is uh, in terms of time to exfiltrate against time to quarantine. Right? Time to exfiltrate is how fast does it take me to get in and get what I'm after if I'm an attacker? And time to quarantine is how long does it take me to stop you once I know you're there? And if you very simply look at those as two line graphs uh, in terms of what the time is, the gap between them is, is getting broader in favor of the attackers. So we've definitely seen that. And I wanted to return briefly to something Dane was saying about what happened in the last year. A more direct line is being drawn between value and value creation and the impact of cybersecurity attacks and, and hacks and breaches. And we're also seeing this question arise more and more in private equity firms that we're serving that both pre-acquisition and post-acquisition are asking, what are the red flags I need to worry about from a CapEx and OpEx perspective on the security side? that if I don't take care of them today are going to get in the way of my ability to devote dollars to digital strategy and getting the private equity returns that I want. Something else about 2016, I think, if, if you, you know, read the newspapers, um, wh whether it's real or suspected, uh, you know, hacking by state-sponsored actors, that seems to be something which, uh, at least in the popular imagination, has, has become more prominent. Is that something that the companies are worrying about more and having to worry about more on the ground? Well, Simon, the concern we're hearing from companies is, I think, less focused on nation state. And it's more about 
tell me, and I think there's an understanding by companies that just because it's in the headlines doesn't necessarily mean that it's a new trend or something that is increasing. It could just be something that is always been there, but being more prominently exposed. And I, th I think a lot of the companies we work with understand that. What they're more focused on is, what is, what, again, this analysis around actors and vectors. So who are the most likely actors? What are the most likely vectors? And in most cases for companies, and of course there are going to be certain ones for certain reasons that are attractive to nation state actors, but in most cases, uh, most companies will be most attractive to non-state or semi-state actors. So I'm talking about you know, criminal syndicates uh, or uh, associated groups of hackers that may not have a nation state affiliation. And typically, in terms of vector, are using uh, very conventional channels for attack, like phishing. It's important to remember that actually the, the real day-to-day -day risk out there is something much more simple and basic, like phishing, which drives actually 80 to 90% of attack volumes today and will continue to. And that the attackers that are following on that still are those syndicates or groups of attackers and even uh, own employees, uh, wittingly and unwittingly. Uh, rather than the sort of very sophisticated nation-state actors. As Mark mentioned, the nation-states got a lot of attention, a lot due to the election cycle. Um, and the news was about the nation-states, but it varies from nation-states to organized crime to you can even go on the dark web and find uh, a black market for attack code. And for as little as 150 bucks. Uh, anybody can go buy code that is very effective at hacking. And uh, that you've effectively this has commoditized the market for attack software and which is the armaments of, of hacking. And so now as a result, you've got this range all the way from nation states that are developing cyber weapons all the way down to uh, the individual who can go on the dark web and with some bitcoins, uh, be buy attack code and be untraceable. And so you have to be prepared for that entire spectrum. No matter what you hear in the news, all of it is happening and you have to be prepared for all of it. It's not even about being perfectly bulletproof, defended against all of these threats. It's about managing the risk and managing the threat as best you can. So that implies that it's also not only the very large companies that are being targeted, uh, and I think we've seen this in the news as well with things like ransomware increasingly hitting relatively small and certainly mid-sized companies. Is that right? Absolutely. You can look at a lot of different data that will suggest uh, in a variety of industries and geographies that the number, Simon, of mid-market companies that are being attacked is, is growing and the number of attacks being executed against them is, is growing. In terms of your point about ransomware, we've also seen ransomware grow as a method. And just to give you, Simon, some perspective on what ransomware is, it's basically where someone potentially either inside but usually outside of an organization will go in, get access to the system, move around inside the enterprise environment, and then enact some kind of code or capability that will prevent uh, the company in question from accessing that part of their systems. And then the attacker will ask for a ransom to unlock that system or re-release the data that they've quarantined from the company's access. Uh, one great example of this was what happened with LA Presbyterian Hospital, where there was a ransomware attack against their systems, and most recently with the San Francisco Municipal Transport System, uh, all of which uh, the ransomware attackers actually asked for a ransom in Bitcoin. Usually it's a pretty small sum, somewhere below $100,000, so not quite the, the direct impact you would expect. 
uh, in terms of magnitude of value at stake, but in terms of downtime, in terms of reputational risk, in terms of brand risk, and then subsequent top line revenue coming out with your operations, it can be a pretty substantial impact on the business. One more thing to add to that um, is I think the the way attackers have looked at things has shifted from they used to look at where's where's there a lot of money, where I can go, go find a lot of money to where's the weakest uh, victim. And it's they're not gonna bother with somebody who's very well protected. Nobody's gonna be perfectly protected. It's really about you know, staying better protected than others, being less of a target, and being less exposed, because the attackers are gonna go where it's easiest to hit now, rather than that's not necessarily just where there's the most money. That's a, a lovely segue into the question of, of what you do about it. Obviously, the, the threat landscape is getting more complex, uh, is getting more dangerous out there, if, if, if anything. Um, you know, James introduced this concept of digital resilience. What have we learned about the, the habits of, of digitally resilient enterprises? What are some of the things we see out there that the more mature, more resilient enterprises do? Yes, I mean, there are a few things that we see. Uh, and just to refresh the concept of digital resilience, it's a, basically a seven-section framework that we developed in work with the World Economic Forum and a variety of business executive and technical leads around the world that basically talks about not just the technical side of cybersecurity, but the governance and the business side of cybersecurity. So just to give you some examples of the elements that are in that seven-piece framework, things not just like how you build security in your technology environment, so how do you think about making sure that new applications you develop are secure, but also how do you think about the governance of cybersecurity? So are you reporting on the topic to your board? If so, how frequently, how often, and who's doing the conversation? And what we found in our work with the Digital Resilience Assessment, which now has served over 70 companies and through a variety of sources brings together a perspective of assessments conducted against over 200 companies and a database of, of many more companies than that to benchmark uh, performance in terms of security and maturity. We basically put together the results of that to find a couple of, of conclusions. And it, one of the main takeaways for us from the work is that digitally resilient companies are ones that have figured out security matters enough to create a leadership position at the C-level dedicated to the task. This usually is in the form of a chief information security officer. And the companies that have that type of position in place tend to score overall across the seven dimensions about 25 to 40% better than their peers who do not have such a role in place. What we also found is that, and this is probably more an outcome of a lot of other factors, but that companies that have a regular board reporting cadence on cybersecurity also tend to score better. And usually that's not necessarily just because they're reporting to the board, but because they have in place the systems of controls, the systems of data and analysis, and also the capabilities to make this something that, A, you feel comfortable taking in front of the board, and B, you know well enough to speak about with the board in a way that's plain English that they can understand. And so while that may not be the driver of the maturity, it's a good indicator of maturity and digital resilience at a company. The other thing that I noticed looking through the recent research is, is companies that use realistic simulations. Wargaming, basically, uh, tend to have higher scores on, on resilience and maturity. Is that right? Yes, it is. And there they score on average about 30 to 40 percent higher than their peers as well. So just to give you a concrete example of one incidence where we served a private equity company, a private equity firm on this topic, uh, we actually helped them to design an end-to-end -end incident response simulation 
over a four-hour period when we actually delivered it that included their senior executive team and their technical team. And the simulation included a variety of scenarios they had to grapple with where we talked about different uh, compromises of sensitive client data as well as uh, investor-related data that they then had to address in their work with uh, their both their clients as well as their portfolio companies. And what we discovered from that simulation was even though in the first hour there was report of a significant compromise of sensitive data on a key server in their environment, it wasn't until hour three that they asked whether or not they should be contacting the regulatory authorities. And when that question finally got asked, there was this pause in the room where everyone realized, gosh, first of all, we should have asked that question at the start. And second of all, do we even understand when a situation rises to the level of consequence that it would require us to reach out? And one of the main recognitions from that first exercise that the private equity firm had ever done of that type, which we find from more mature companies that have done it many times, is that actually before the crisis occurs, you can already have in place the controls and guidelines you need to know how to decide 70 to 80% of the difficult decisions you'll have to take under that crisis setting. And so just the act and practice of putting into place those capabilities already significantly moves you down the path toward greater maturity and security. So it's interesting that you said there, Mark, that uh, simulations, war games uh, are something that you, know, you should be doing annually, for example. It sounds like a lot of this is not a one and done uh, thing, right? I think that's exactly right. It doesn't matter where an organization is on the spectrum of, of cyber maturity. It's a matter of basic hygiene. It's almost like uh, the equivalent of uh, dental uh, brushing and flossing. Even if you aren't doing it regularly enough, you got to start and you got to do it regularly. And it doesn't matter whether you're mature on that standpoint or you, and you've always been doing it, you still have to keep doing it. You still have to keep improving. You still have to keep staying on top of things. If you're less mature, you got to get started. One example from our recent work involves a, a Fortune 100 consumer goods manufacturer. And the, the situation was that their resident chief information security officer was struggling to get his security program off the ground. He had come recently from another employer and knew that the consumer goods manufacturer was behind, but hadn't yet been effective in rallying the troops. So uh, we came in to do some work with him and conduct the initial digital resilience assessment, which does this top-down benchmarking to peers. And from the findings that we came away with, it became quite clear there were a couple places where they needed to act, and they needed to act quickly. Uh, number one was to identify what their critical assets were in their environment, because you can't conduct good incident response simulations, you can't prioritize your spend, and you can't pr properly secure yourself against threats without knowing what you have and what matters. This is the crown jewels concept, right? Exactly. The other things that we discovered were that they didn't really have that incident response simulation muscle memory that we were talking about and that they needed to build it quickly, partly because as a consumer goods manufacturer that has a very much consumer facing part of the business, they over the next five years were looking to grow in a way that would be more consumer focused, direct to consumer and digital. So their threat landscape was growing because of the new capabilities they were bringing on board. After those, the incident response simulation and the critical assets identification, there was also an implication for how to think about structuring their information security organization. Because at the present time, security was the responsibility of many people part-time instead of a few people 
full-time. And consequently, it just wasn't getting the attention that it needed and deserved, especially in things like upstream application development for some of the digital tools that the business wanted to create, and therefore risked creating a lot of slowdown in time to market. And so the, the last piece also that came out of this was that they had a franchise uh, group that they were working with. And basically, uh, the, the group that they were working with uh, also was interacting with their digital systems. And they were unclear with these third parties what exactly their threat exposure was. And so what they also needed to do was figure out what their third party risk was, not just how to structure their organization, build their response capability, or prioritize their assets. And so over the last year, coming out of that assessment work, we've been working very closely with them across many of these steps in their journey to help them get to where they need to be, not just to be secure, but also to use security as a method and means for enabling their business going forward. Can we uh, just go back to this, this concept of, of crown jewels? Uh, it, it's very easy to say that, of course, you should prioritize you know, those assets and systems that are most business critical. But I would imagine that in practice, if you're a large enterprise, that's actually a non-trivial piece of work to figure out what the assets are, who owns them, you know, internally, what the governance is, how to protect them. Yeah, it's, it is very hard work, and it's, it's work that is time-consuming, Simon. How that typically works in practice and, and how we think about approaching it is that uh, you know, a, a firm will typically look at first, how do my systems and assets map to each other? And that's really where the hard work begins. Uh, our Cyber Risk Insights solution helps companies looking to do that hard work by starting with a 60% solution over a period of, call it five to eight weeks on an individual BU basis. A company will try to basically richly map their systems to their assets, to their threat landscape, to their business value chain. Based on that, prioritize their assets and say, okay, what are the controls we ought to have in place versus what we have in place today? And then what's our plan to close the control gaps over time? That's the hard work. And to what Mark said, I'd add the step a lot of companies need to take now is they do some of these things at an IT level, but they don't involve the business perspective on the risk. So it, it, it's one thing to take an IT perspective, but that's generally not sufficient to really understand and manage the risk. You need that business perspective, and we've been advising companies to make that, make that leap, to make it more of a business issue, not just a, a tech issue, and to look at the tech within the ecosystem of the business as a whole. And there are different contexts and frames in which this risk management is going to need to be applied. It's, it's not just about IT. And it's not just about conventional IT anymore. As you think about the Internet of Things and specifically operational technology, uh, where you have next horizon environments for threat. And uh, there are a couple of factors to keep in mind. One is just the sheer explosion of connectivity, devices, and persistence in the technology environment. So what I mean by those things is you have more people touching more objects, and those objects are communicating with each other more often and more regularly. And that's just creating a volume of communication and code and data that is being transited from many points to many points at a degree of complexity that no single institution or person can track. And that's creating a lot more risk in terms of the threat landscape. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One recent example we had was talking with a utility that was looking to get help on cybersecurity. And for a utility, of course, you have 
both a very robust IT environment, uh, in, you know, your sort of information technology, but also OT, your operational technology. And specifically, that means things like the industrial control systems you might have in place in a water filtration plant that tell you kind of when to filter the water and how. And if that gets compromised, of course, it can have significant repercussions for the population it serves. And one of the key risks there is that OT, historically, has been treated very differently from IT in terms of how it gets updated. So while information technology gets patched and updated regularly, think about the OS on your iPhone, and you're constantly getting a new version that you just point and click to get. OT is updated on a multi-year basis. So you can just think about when things are updating at a different pace, there's going to start to be daylight in terms of how they work and therefore how you can exploit them. And so that creates situations like what we saw with this dam that was hacked uh, by a hacker who got in through a front-end payment processor uh, or a water filtration plant elsewhere in the US that got hacked and actually had the chemical composition of its water altered. And another one to get uh, interested in and excited about is cloud security. So if you think about the migration to cloud happening today, the number one reason we find through the firm's enterprise cloud survey that why companies don't migrate to cloud is because of security concerns. And they're just not sure how to think about securing everything they would like to move to the cloud, despite the benefits cloud might confer on their business in terms of taking cost out. And so uh, in all of these areas, cybersecurity is going to play an increasingly important role and I think will be a place where uh, there's a lot of impact that can be driven for people who can get the answer right about how you think about security as an integral part of your business. Yeah, and to, to your point, Dane, I mean, this, this speaks to that tension between innovation and security. And there's a constant push and pull there. And I would guess quite a lot of tension between security experts and business units, you know, people who want to do things and people who are advising them to take it slowly. Well, I think that's a, that's a very good point. And to, on top of that, it's this goes back to the uh, issue we discussed earlier about getting the business executives to buy in. And, and we've been uh, trying to help uh, our clients understand and make that shift from IT security is really just a control function or a restriction on their ability to act that slows them down into it is a continuous risk management process that they need to build into their way of thinking and into their way of operating. And those companies that make that shift are the ones that are getting uh, on, you know, riding the wave better than the ones who are getting left behind who are not uh, able to make that shift. Okay, well, thank you very much. I think that's all we have time for today. But Dane and Mark, thanks for being here today. Uh, to find about more about our work on uh, cybersecurity and other issues, uh, go to mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.